0: From the ACLU, this is At Liberty. I'm Molly Kaplan, your host. One in four Americans are unbanked or underbanked. That's because banks across the country are closing branches or they're penalizing those who don't have large savings. This means that 64 million Americans disproportionately black and brown, can't easily access basic financial services and are forced to pay thousands a year in fees for alternatives. But one solution to this disparity is within our reach. It's actually just down the street from you. The post office. The Postal Service has the infrastructure to provide basic financial services at all of its branches. With an office in every zip code nationwide and trust within the community Banking at the most accessible institution in America could create a public option needed to put millions of families in greater control of their finances. Joining us today to break down the specifics of postal banking is Rakeem Brooks. Rakim is a senior campaign strategist at the ACLU and is managing our new systemic equality campaign. Rakim, thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Very happy to be here.
0: I want to start with... First, understanding the problem that postal banking would be solving for. There is deep wealth disparity in this country. That is not saying anything new. This disparity tracks across race lines. In her book, Mercer on in The Color of Money writes about how when the Emancipation Proclamation was signed in 1863, the Black community owned a total of 0.5% of total wealth in the U.S., 150 years later, that number has barely budged. It's about 1%. Rakim, can you tell us what are some of the reasons why this gap remains so wide in this country?
1: Sure, that's a complicated question, of course, which goes beyond postal banking, but let me try to summarize some of the reasons for that. In the 20th century, most of the wealth that was built by the middle class was built by federal policy. And so, for example, prior to the 1930s, you wanted to buy a home. You often had to put down over 50% of the mortgage, if you could imagine that today. Today, people put down 3%, 5%, 10%, 20% seems like a lot. You had to put down 50%. And so it was really a privilege only reserved for the few. And after the Great Depression, The New Deal government basically established a set of policies and programs that allowed middle-class Americans to finally have access to homes and to build equity in those homes, and in so doing, build wealth. Black Americans were disproportionately excluded from those provisions, uh, something today that we probably don't think about. The GI Bill provided education access, which of course is essential to economic mobility, but it also provided access to homes, to low down payment mortgages. And throughout our history, and particularly in the 1940s and 1950s, many of the veterans that were coming back from World War II were basically ruled ineligible for those loans for no other good reason, for no good reason at all, actually, but for no other reason other than the color of their skin. And so the chasm that we see is really a result of... Systemic inequality. It was government policy that provided and grew the now white middle class. And it was government policy and discrimination, redlining and private discrimination that prevented Black Americans from reaping the same benefits.
0: Postal banking would be a government service. Why is it important that the government do something? Why can't individuals address this disparity on their own?
1: Well, Marissa is really the expert on this. And so as you mentioned, her, I would have everyone consult her book because most of what I'll say is just repeating what she would say. So I think the first point to make is that the entire banking industry is supported by the federal government. So as we well know, after the 2008 financial crisis, and if you were old enough to live through the savings and loan crisis of the 80s or any number of the crises that have happened, when our banking system is suffering a liquidity problem, it's often the Federal Reserve that steps in and says, here's how we're going to solve this, right? Well, what does that ultimately mean? The government is responsible for our economic well-being by propping up these banking institutions. And so when you start to ask the question, if the government is responsible for that, should the government be responsible for ensuring access for all Americans? And my answer and MRSA's answer is yes, absolutely, because these banks are themselves private institutions that are being supported by government, so we can make demands on them. One of the ways in which we made demands on them in the past was something called the Community Reinvestment Act. I was telling you a story earlier about how the federal government provided for the middle class, for the white middle class by providing access to homes. Well, it's also the case that just having a bank in your neighborhood allowed for the accumulation of wealth because you could access loans for small businesses. Well, in many minority communities, black communities throughout most of the country, throughout most of the 20th century, but then Latino communities as America became increasingly diverse, lacked access to banking institutions, and when they had banking institutions, and this is the beauty of Mercer's story, the banks would accept deposits from communities but would not loan into those communities because they thought they were too risky. And so what was the result? In the 1970s, the Congress established the Community Reinvestment Act, which said if you accept deposits from a community, you have an obligation to lend into those communities. Now, that's still good law, but here's the hook if you open a banking depository institution, if you open a bank branch. And so that's how this all starts to connect because if in fact a bank says, hmm, we don't need a bank branch in that neighborhood anymore, there are other ways of collecting deposits. Or for example, actually the people in that neighborhood are really so poor, that it's not even worth collecting deposits from them. So we won't open a bank branch, then they have no community reinvestment obligations and they're not required to loan into those communities. And ultimately, capital and liquidity is the lifeblood of a community. It's what allows you to build a life for yourself and allows a community to build a life for itself.
0: And you mentioned the lack of physical access to a banking branch. This is something that you're mentioning that the closing of branches started decades ago, but it's something that, as I understand it, has gotten worse recently. COVID has made it worse, and the numbers are sort of shocking on this. Between 2010 and 2018, banks closed more than 10,000 branches than they opened, and mostly branches in majority low-income or Black neighborhoods. Can you explain what the current landscape is? How bad is the problem of literally not having a bank in your neighborhood?
1: Sure. Well, I'm from New York City and I'm living in Washington, D.C. So it probably seems for people like me, unimaginable that there aren't banks everywhere because it always seems like there's a bank looking to take your money in one of those cities. But the truth is that in over roughly 60 percent of community zip codes around the country, there is no banking institution at all. And this disproportionately, as you say, affects rural communities, it affects native communities, it affects black and brown communities, but it overall affects low and moderate income communities, regardless of the race of the person or the people living in those communities. And so it's quite dramatic. And as you say, after 2008, back a little bit further than where you started, but after 2008 and the financial crisis, obviously many of our banking institutions were in distress. If you look from 2008 until 2020, roughly 15% of bank depository institutions nationwide closed. There's a way in which you can romanticize that and say, well, we didn't have mobile deposit in 2010. We didn't have virtual tellers in 2010. And so many of us, as I say, who are used to having banks around, treat them as being somewhat superfluous because through our smartphones and with other technology, we're able to continue doing our banking. But that's the intersection. I mean, a significant number portion of our country is actually not attached to broadband, does not have access to high-speed internet. And so for those sections of the country, which of course overlap with the sections of the country where you're losing bank depository institutions. There actually is no mobile alternative. And what people have to turn to are payday lenders, check cashers and the like. And so I think that's the story of really the past decade with regard to bank branches. And some estimates suggest that roughly another 20,000 branches will close after COVID because, again, the concentration of capital. And that's really the important point is sort of where you started Capital is overwhelmingly concentrated in our country among a few people. We know about the 1%, but really most capital is concentrated among the upper third. And so banks are catering to those people. And for good reason. It makes sense in their kind of private bank logic. But again, remember, they're supported by the federal government and therefore should have some sort of obligation to communities and the public as a whole. And to the extent that they won't fulfill those obligations, we think that postal banking may be another option to meet people where they are.
0: You had mentioned some of the alternative financial services. If you do not have access, physical access to a bank, or you don't have enough money and the bank is charging you fees or making it incredibly difficult to give them your money, what are some of these alternatives? You had mentioned payday lending. Can you explain why payday lending is not a good alternative? Yeah. Well,
1: let me try and illustrate this for you about what happens to a person who lacks access to a bank account or at least lacks access to the option to cash their check at a reasonable price. So imagine you receive as sort of this target group of people, low moderate, low to moderate income people. Let's say they're making roughly $24,000 a year or $30,000 a year. So in a month, they're making roughly $2,500. We'll just, just treat it as one month's check. Okay, so you don't have access to these institutions. No one really ever asks you like, well, what would you do to turn that check into cash? Well, what happens is they go into a check cashing place where they might be charged up to 10% of that income, right? So from a $2,500 check, they now lost $250. Here's the irony. They just turned it into cash. But this person now has bills to pay and people aren't accepting personal checks, particularly from working class individuals. So now you've got to turn that same money, since you just lost $250 on, into money orders to pay your bills, to pay your electricity bill, any number of utility bills, your rent and so forth. And so now you end up paying, let's say, 5% for each denomination of money order that you require. So if you need a $500 money order, then you're going to pay $25 on that. So it costs you $525. Once this whole series of transactions is completed, now, may not sound like a whole lot. Let's treat that at the bottom edge of things. But for a family that's making $30,000 a year, this is a lot of money. This is $3,000 a year that they're losing simply to turn their money, to make their money usable, turn their hard-earned wages into something that allows them to deploy it into the world to sustain them. And so that's really what occurs. Now, take a person who is in that same situation but ends up falling short for one reason or another, right? They ended up sick or had to watch their child. Well, now they've got to figure out how to make ends meet in already difficult circumstances and might turn to payday lenders. And so for a $300 loan, some estimates have suggested that you could pay up to $500 in interest over the course of two weeks just to get that initial loan. And that's because banks don't offer small dollar loans.
0: So what I hear you're saying is that basically it is very expensive to be poor. That Billie Holiday, when she's saying them that's got shall get, was spot on. Wealth begets more wealth and no wealth costs money. So how can postal banking help?
1: Well, postal banking has become one of those terms that means several different things, depending on the advocate that you're speaking to. And so let me first contextualize a little bit the historical referent. So the historical referent is from about the 19 teens to the 1960s in America, we had actual postal banking. You had postal savings accounts. I actually got a note from a supporter who says that they remember taking change when they were kids and it was part of like their classroom project that they would go to the post office and they would open a postal savings account and it taught them the value of interest. Well, so at its height, The postal banking system had almost $4 billion, probably about $3.5 billion of General American's savings. And it operated just like a savings account would. You had a little postal passbook, you made your deposits at your local post office, and you had your receipt. And so that was the history for a long time. And people say, well, why did that come into existence? Well, it came into existence in part in rebellion to the same things that we're talking about, The sense that the big financial institutions were not looking out for everyday Americans, for all Americans. And so after a huge fight, basically an agreement was struck that you could have these low dollar savings accounts. Now, if I remember correctly, it was basically $2,500 was the limit, but this was in the nineteen teens, So today that's roughly $40,000. You could imagine it. I mean, this shows you how much banks are actually interested in the wealthy that they would say, oh, we don't need $40,000. You all can hold on well, to that. Yeah, and they they <laughs> didn't want
0: competition. Like this was called the poor man's bank. And this was a way to appease the banks. Like, don't worry, this is just for poor people. You don't want them anyway.
1: Yes, exactly. Exactly right. So it was just these small den- nominations of money, they won't matter to you, right? These kids who are just dropping off their change to learn something about interest, they'll be customers for you later on when they surpass this limit. So that was the history of postal banking. People have asked what happened to postal banking? Well basically in the 1960s amidst all the both social upheaval and promise of the civil rights movement, where you passed the Voting Rights Act and the Civil Rights Act and the Fair Housing Act. There was the thought that banking institutions, that America was changing and that banking institutions were going to invite everybody in, that we were going to have a different kind of society. And actually what happened was as soon as they removed the post office as a banking institution, we suddenly saw the proliferation of what we now know as payday lenders and check cashing institutions. They were virtually non-existent in the United States before then. So I give that history to say that's what we had, and there is some yearning for something like it again because of the crisis that we face among the unbanked and the underbanked. As far as process is concerned, to get to that point, what the ACLU is advocating is a form of postal banking. We sometimes call it essential financial services provided by the post office, but it's something that's already authorized by statute, which is to say, I gave you that description of the person who's cashing their check. That's what we want people to be able to do at post offices. And actually, in some post offices around the country, people are able to cash government checks at their post offices. So we want you to go in and be able to do that. We want you to be able to get money orders as you currently can. And that money order authorization is partially the reason you can provide these other services. We want people to be able to engage in online bill pay and money transfers. There's already a money transfer program set up within the United States Postal Service that would allow as easily for online bill pay. The funny thing about all this is that the unbanked and the underbanked, roughly 70% of them, already use money orders. Largest provider of money orders in the country is the Postal Service. And so the Post Office is set up to compete in this space against the payday lenders who, really, as I said, are profiting off of people's desperation and their need to turn their money into something that's functionally usable, turn their checks into something that's functionally usable in the society. I um, mean, the payday lenders who are really profiting off of crisis.
0: And something else that we mentioned earlier is that. Payday lenders, post offices can compete with payday lenders because they have the infrastructure. I mean, there is already a post office in every zip code. That seems to be an incredible advantage. And am I correct in thinking that because they already have those infrastructural costs met, that they don't have to charge people as much? First of all, I assume they're subsidized and they also don't have to charge as much because their overhead is high as payday lenders. Is that correct? That's
1: basically right. I want to quarrel a little bit with the subsidized point of it because one of the points I've been trying to make to folks is that the highest margin business for the post office is the money order. So the money order is not subsidized. In fact, all the services that we're talking about don't need to be subsidized. There are other services that have to be subsidized. For example, there's a reason that Amazon drops off its packages and then has the post office take it the final mile because that's expensive. Nevertheless, that's part of our constitution. The reason we have a post office is because we wanted the entire country to be connected. And so the post office has an obligation to fulfill that constitutional requirement. Now that's what's being subsidized. And so normally people can get along with that, right? But the thing about these sort of essential financial services is that they pay for themselves. They're an additional thing that allows the post office to function as a service, providing mail carrying as we expect, providing parcel delivery as we expect but also reaching out to communities in need.
0: Another way that the post office seems to have an advantage over some of these payday lenders and cash checking services is that people generally speaking also seem to trust their post office. I mean, they have a postal worker who maybe they've developed a relationship who's maybe supported them through COVID. Is that a factor in why postal banking could be a solution?
1: Absolutely. These are community institutions. Most Americans know where the closest post office is to them. Most Americans have some relationship to their postal worker or to a set of postal workers. Everyone, much like you can identify a firefighter, can identify a U.S. postal worker. In 2015, Pew Charitable Trust did a survey of the unbanked and the underbanked and asked, if these various services were provided, would you use them? And going down to ATMs being in the post office, prepaid debit cards, I mean, a range of services that we would support, but are sort of beyond what we think the necessary mandate is to deal with the problem. And over 60% in every case said, yes, we would use these services. And I think that speaks to the trust that people have in their post office and in the postal workers.
0: You've talked about this a little bit, but I'm curious how hard or easy it will be to flip this switch on. You mentioned that this is not a new concept. We have been here before. We know how to do it. They have the infrastructure. They are already in these communities. People trust them. But how doable is this? What is required to turn the switch on?
1: Well, beyond the political bridge, by which I take it to mean, let's say, bipartisan agreement. Let's just call it that. (laughs) Okay. So, Because, of course, one of the first things that the ACLU is advocating is that the Postal Board of Governors be filled. This is, as I mentioned earlier, post office is a constitutional requirement. They have a board that's meant to govern them. It's not currently filled. So we'd like to see that happen. But once that's happened, really, it is just flipping the switch. It is, I think, rolling out a series of pilots around the country. And there are several congressional members that are very interested in this. Rolling out pilots around the country and seeing functionally what works beginning to meet with vendors who can help you think about product design and help you think about the consumer experience and really trying to reach the unbanked and underbanked. Because ultimately, as we've said, this is meant to be a business vertical for the post office, right? Again, I'm getting beyond myself, but I uh, went to business school so I can talk the language to some extent. We're trying to create a vertical for the post office, and therefore it has to think about how it can grow its market share relative to these other institutions that we've been describing, payday lenders and check cashers. And so that's going to take some work and some effort, but I think we should be able to have pilots rolled out by the end of the year, in part because of what I said earlier, which is the post office is already doing most of this. In some places, it's cashing checks. In most places, it's providing money orders. In some places, it's providing for money transfers, a system that could be amended to provide for online bill pay. But that's the political process that has to be worked out. And so we had Senator Gillibrand as a member of our action series last week. So She has a bill along with Senator Sanders. Senator Brown has a bill. And so there are various proposals floating around Washington at this moment for what postal banking could look like. But we're saying just take the first step. There's a problem. There's a crisis. Let's just start to turn on the fire hydrants and deal with it while we figure out the more expansive vision.
0: I'm curious, the idea of postal banking and our backing of it is part of a larger vision of the systemic equality agenda. Can you describe how the postal banking arm of the systemic equality agenda sort of fits into this larger picture?
1: People have asked me, why is the ACLU involved in the racial wealth gap? And what I've said to them is that where race and the economy intersect is often some form of state discrimination that unfortunately throughout our history, the state has acted in ways to limit the ability of black people and indigenous people and other people of color from fully accessing the financial benefits of a system that was set up to enrich the middle class. And so we can't just sort of let things stay where they are now that many of those forms of discrimination to jury discrimination have been removed because we're living with the legacies of them. So if you think about down payment assistance, If you think about the need to put down a down payment of any sort in FHA loans, people might say, oh, the FHA loan is a really great product that allows poor working Americans to access a home. There are all sorts of fees and other things associated with that loan that (laughs) fit with with poor people in particular that actually makes it more difficult for them to access a home. And that's another conversation for future series on housing, for example. But my point is the various infrastructure that we've created in order to allow Americans to live prosperous lives relative to the rest of the world. were denied to Black Americans and people of color generally and continue to be denied based on those legacies and similar kinds of discrimination. And so that's really where this agenda sits. Postal banking is part of it. Student debt is part of it. We're trying to think about the racial wealth gap by thinking about that intersection and asking ourselves, what happened that led to this divergence and what can we do to solve
0: for it? You know, I know what we're doing through our campaign. You mentioned Senator Gillibrand and some other members of Congress are also interested in supporting postal banking. Is there anything that just normal people can do to support these measures around the systemic equality agenda, but more specifically, postal banking?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So you can call your senator and tell them first that you want a postal board of governors that is full. It represents both parties. It's a bipartisan board, and we believe it should be bipartisan, but every member of that bipartisan board has got to be appointed in order for it to serve its function as a bipartisan board. So call your senators and let them know that this is important to you. The ACLU has been engaged in this process for a little over three weeks now, contacting Senator Schumer and Senator Peters of Michigan in particular, who oversees the Homeland Security and Government Affairs Committee, which has oversight over the post office to let them know that we want to see nominations move forward as quickly as possible to fill the board. So that would be the first piece.
0: And can you just reiterate why that's so important?
1: Yes, because ultimately, if you have a bipartisan board, you have the kind of conversation that's necessary to have an institution that serves all Americans, regardless of ideology, regardless of party. Right. Again, it's a constitutional institution. And so we want the board to be filled with people who reflect broadly the experiences and opinions of Americans writ large. And we think once that's been accomplished, you'll begin to see more forward thinking in the Postal Service about how it is it can continue to fulfill its historical mandate and perhaps adopt things from its past, like postal banking, in order to meet the needs of the future. I was interviewed the other day and I said, we don't expect the Postal Office of the 21st Century to be the Postal Office of the 20th Century. That wouldn't make any sense. No institution should be the same 100 years ago. You know, I'm talking at the ACLU. So we're not the same as we were 100 years ago, nor should the post office be. So we hope, right? But it is the case that we still have a function to serve, and the post office has a function to serve in our democracy. And so we should always be thinking, what's the next innovation? What's the thing that allows it to persist and succeed and live alongside the democracy as it was intended?
0: Rakeem, thank you so much for joining us. And thank you so much for stretching the bounds of what we at the ACLU do. I've been here a while. And when postal banking came up, I was like, what? I thought I knew all of our things. I don't know anything about this. I need to read. So I'm so appreciative of that. Thank you.
1: No, thank you. It's been a lot of fun thus far. I haven't been at the ACLU for long, but I have a lot of those kinds of campaigns attached to my name. And so <laughs> people often wonder whether or not I work here or somewhere else. And I guarantee you, I work here and this is what the ACLU is doing.
0: Yeah, you've become like professor in chief at the ACLU, teaching us all <laughs> new for tricks.
1: variety of issues, yeah. Yes. <laughs> thank you, Molly. I appreciate the time.
0: Thanks so much for joining us today. If you enjoyed this conversation, please be sure to subscribe to At Liberty wherever you get your podcasts and rate and review the show. We so appreciate the feedback. Until next week, stay strong.